Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Sean Whitesell. Sean is a Microsoft MVP, ASP Insider, Technical Reviewer, and Cloud Architect at TokenX. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So before we kind of get started and sort of dig into the meat of things, would you give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself, like tell them how you got started in the industry? Oh, sure. Um, I got to start playing with uh, computers and electronics back in 1986. I've been enjoying controlling things since then. I really love how uh, computers worked and uh, just been fiddling with them for quite a while. been a professional developer for 20 plus years now. And most recently been for the last two years, I think, um, working as a cloud architect primarily with uh, Microsoft Azure and uh, as well as uh, Amazon's AWS cloud services. And uh, so, yeah, just been programming all various industries, um, doing all kinds of uh, uh, various uh, programming tasks, whatever was needed, et cetera. So that's it in a quick nutshell anyway. Yeah, yeah, sure. What, what's, a, what's a sort of like a typical day for you these days? So these days I've I've been working on a lot of uh, design requirements, building building the design requirements, understanding some of the industry changes. Um, for where I work, we deal with uh, protect or encrypting and protecting credit card information, and so seeing how different uh, cloud technologies are moving, um, what we how we need to apply our uh, our products in various ways, and making use of cloud technologies, et cetera, then what uh, programming, what new programming changes are coming out that uh, we need to leverage. Yeah, I do a lot of designing where I do a lot of proof of concept stuff and then design out what programmers, uh, the development team will be working on and making production ready and that go through um, AppSec reviews, et cetera. So get it ready for the for production use. The three of us are primarily line of business application developers, usually Microsoft Stack, uh, oftentimes, a lot of JavaScript. Ash has spent a fair amount of time in the YAML world doing a lot of DevOpsy stuff. Are those the types of applications that, that you look at or you work with? The line of business, collecting data, collecting form data, making sure you can scale and, and meet customer demands? Yeah, that's a lot of what I worry about is making sure that infrastructure is there, that we can scale, that there's a DevOps pipeline things that uh, supporting the developers to do their jobs well and, you know, security minded uh, fronts as far as who has access to what, working with least privilege type permissions to making sure that networking rules are in place, uh, leveraging the different cloud technologies or, you know, the right, the right load balancers, security groups, security group rules, uh, things like that. So, it, you know, just per, you know, being, focused on permissions and uh, what's going to help the developers get their job done. Are we using the right size virtual machines or do we have enough of them? How fast can we scale? What about disaster recovery? 
what are our backups? Obviously, we already have all this planned out. This is nothing new, but it's that kind of role that I do uh, working with others is to design the situational preparations for what we need to do in those different cases. And are these typically monolithic type applications? Or are we looking at, because it seems like a lot of the roles these days, a lot of the tasks are to break up monolithic applications and look to start breaking down and, and delivering microservice type architectures and figuring out where the bounds of those systems are. Yeah, so where I'm at right now, we don't have a monolith as such. We have multiple services. And now when I got started with microservices, it was at a previous job where the microservices architecture was born out of the need to have some data analytics people to uh, work on a project. And which this is one of the great tenets about microservices is that with the one team of developers, they're all .NET developers, but the data analytics guys were using Python. And Python is a great language for doing data analytics, plus it's their, it's, it's the language they know best. So I built up Kubernetes clusters, let them work on the, what they needed to do and run in Kubernetes, while the C-sharp side, that was more of a control plane to call the microservices and have the analytics ran on that data that was supplied to them. So it was, it was nice with microservices to allow, like we said, one of the main tenets is the best programming language for the job that you need to do. And it helps uh, spread that out. So in our case, it also was not so much of a splitting a monolith as it was we needed new functionality and it didn't make sense to bring that into the monolith. It made more sense to have it external to the monolith, let that scale independently, develop independently. And that way, uh, you don't have, you, we already had the two separate teams with the, the analytics developers as well as the .NET developers. That way you've got separation of deadlines and requirements. And it was a matter of just coordinating between the teams. And so that this monolith, you know, the monolith over here as needed could call the microservice someplace else across the network and feed it data and control what, what was needing to happen there. A lot of the companies that I've worked at, we've had a bunch of small services. So you might think microservices, but a lot of the times it's more just a very large application represented as a bunch of small services. Like it's not it's not designed any special way. It's just they they had something big and they broke it apart into something smaller, uh, making, I guess, a microlith. So <laughs> what is the difference between just a bunch of services and actual like a microservice architecture. The thing about microservices, nobody has one solid definition about it. You can ask many different people. They're all going to give you several different answers, right? One of the biggest things about a microservice is that it is not about the size of the code. You could still have a million lines in there. It's not so much about the size of the code as it is about the, the focus on the domain. And this is where it kind of separates the microservice from, as you called it, a, a micro a microlith, or what it, somebody others would call a distributed monolith, where you know you're, you're pulling this functionality out of a monolith, and uh, then you realize, well, it's got a dependency on this other service, has a dependency on this other service, and we you know, we we didn't refactor well enough. So now you bring all this stuff over, and you don't end up with a monolith and a microservice. You end up with two monoliths. Now you've kind of doubled your problems in a sense. 
if that's kind of where you're at, but it's a, a hop along the road, if you want to call it that, you're, you might have to go to production, but you've already got your, your, uh, backlog items and you've already got your sprint set up. So you're going to, you're going to take that new monolith and you're going to split it up even further. It's simply a, a hop to get you to a true microservices architecture. Then fine. Just you keep working at it, but don't stop there. And, you know, if you do need to come back and you know, clean that up some more, you know, go, go look at your dependency injection, go find out where the items you've got to refactor, find out why your code is not clean when you need to split that apart. And the other piece too, that I tell developers is that if you're going to, when you're going to start on your first microservice, go find the smallest piece of code, not, not even the one that the highest priority, just go grab the smallest piece of code that you want moved over. And the reason why is because and I, I, I tout this over and over and over. A microservice is an independent application. It needs to have a single responsibility. It needs to have that one focus on a domain, that one domain. Don't have it process invoices as well as scheduling something else and as well as processing HR forms and medical claims and stuff. Let it do one thing and do one thing well. As you find your way to refactor, find what you need to do. But when you're when you're ready to build that first one, you need to have, since it's an independent application, you need to have its own code repository. You need to build up your CI/CD pipelines, right? Continuous integration, continuous deployment pipelines for this at new independent application. You're going to have to design the infrastructure. How is this thing going to live? What kind of servers? Do you want Linux? Do you want Windows? What's the networking going to look like? What kind of load balancer should you be using? It doesn't matter the code that's running as a microservice. You still have all these other decisions that you're going to have to consider and put in place regardless of the code size. So when you start on that first one, start small, because then if you've carved something out, and you've got to go, well, that didn't work. We need to step back and maybe, you know, punt and do something else. Well, then you didn't lose that much. You didn't do that much code change, if any, to the monolith. There's so much lower layer things to consider and put in place. I think like it's easy to talk about splitting along the domain, but I think like sometimes a lot of these, and this is maybe just sort of like uh wrestling a list with this topic of distributed monoliths and microservices and sort of the difference between these but uh some so a lot of times like we look at something like a legacy monolith that is has many multiple domains in them but then in the domains themselves there's domains within the domains right and so you have like a, a true microservice is going to break it down to that smallest domain but that may not be a great place to start and so breaking it down, you know, the into the larger domains first and breaking that apart and saying, okay, all of these belong. And that, that sort of like becomes like the, maybe I, I forget what you had used before, but like the in, inventory service or whatever the, right. the, you know, and, and, and now it may do three different, three different types of inventory related things, but then we can break that down later. And those are the steps along the way that you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you may start with and go, all right, we need to we need to extract our accounting functionality. We're gonna ex we're gonna pull this out of the monolith. That way the the changes to accounting can happen independently of the monolith, the you know, the things that are left over. And then you look into this thing and you're like, well, the accounting for this particular team. Now, 
Maybe for a different organization, that's really tiny code. But maybe for a different organization, it's huge domain. And you look at it and go, realize, you know, well, we've got a large set of functionality. I don't want to be careful that I don't say code, right? It's not about code size. Look at the amount of functionality that's in accounting for accounts payable versus accounts receivable. Maybe that becomes two different microservices instead of just an accounting microservice. And yeah, I mean, that's part of that discovery, right? Is as you start building this out going, all right, we've got this accounting microservice and well, what is it going to do? What is it going to provide? How are we going to access it, et cetera? And you go, wow, this is a huge domain. Should we go a step further? And now it's two microservices or more. Is it better to break it down first by like that accounting or would you say, okay, we have the whole monolith and I go, I see this big piece of functionality that is accounts payable. I need like that's one little thing and I can break that off and you break that off as one microservice because that's where you're ultimately going. But the rest of accounting is still a part of the monolith. Is there a reason to go one one route of breaking it up versus another? Sure. I would say looking at the team of developers, how much do you as a team of developers truly understand the functionality that you're dealing with? So if the developers don't fully understand the true functionality, maybe it's a new set of developers and that functionality has been legacy. It's been there for a long time. Then what you're better off doing is go doing a, a, what's called event storming. Go do an event storming workshop. Get with your subject matter experts. Get on, maybe using butcher paper on a wall or a gigantic whiteboard, whatever you have access to. Get your colored sticky notes and get with your subject matter experts. Yes, the users, the the ones that actually use our products, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, just because we develop it, they're the ones using it. We develop what is meant to fulfill and implement a business process. So if you find that subject matter expert that says, here's how an invoice flows, here's all the various steps, here's all the conditions, here's all the, well, what if this exception happens through this process? How is that handled? What if there's late payments? What if there's, you know, all these kinds of conditions? Let the subject matter expert teach you, the developer team, how this thing's supposed to function. As you're looking at that code in the monolith, that domain and going, all right, what do we truly need to pull out? You now have a better business sense as to what needs to be pulled out. Now, why would you even have the discussion to begin with, though? That's a, a huge question as well. Why, what about that particular bit of process says it needs to evolve and scale independently of the other monolith? Monolith is not a bad word. A monolith becomes bad when it's got years and years of bandages. <laughs> you know, you got that spaghetti coat. It's called the big ball of mud. And when knowledge about that has left the door because maybe of attrition, maybe, you know, the company was bought, et cetera, right? If you don't understand the domains, how are you going to know what to pull out? So now you get this monolith, you're looking at all this and going, okay, well, there seems to be the need. And the need is usually going to come up with, well, we have this new project, and if we, the company, can be the first one in that industry to implement this new idea, that's money. That's gold, right? We, if, what, if we're, what if we're the first one in this industry for two years providing a new service? That means bonuses for years. And you go, yeah, but we can't touch the monolith. You, you patch one bug, you find five more. 
it becomes a problem when you're like, I just, you know, the boss is like, please just add some functionality. Why is it so difficult to change the monolith? And you're like, we don't touch it. It's the golden monolith. It's, it's fine. We just can't move it. We can't touch it. It's become so fragile. Then you're more likely to go, okay, can we alter it just slightly? And we'll make a new microservice with brand new business functionality. And the existing monolith is altered just enough to make a call to that microservice. Now you're not so much tampering with the monolith, but now it's just a network call to a new microservice. Now the argument of new functionality, new microservice versus at what point do you decide, yes, this existing code needs to be extracted from the monolith so that it can evolve independent of the rest of the monolith because maybe that's the fragile code. And this new service, this new domain that was there for the last five years is not as bad. Since microservices is an architectural style, it's more of an architecture than it is about coding, right? There's several other architecture ideas out there. I say ideas. There's so many other uh, development architectures out there. What about, and this is where this is kind of slightly arguable, why not just have multiple instances of the monolith and you're using feature flags to govern what the other instances are actually processing and doing? A lot of times having duplicate monoliths with feature flagging is actually a cheaper way of resolution than bringing in microservices. Microservices is an architecture. It is not the architecture that is the golden one that's going to solve mm-hmm. your problems. It is far, far from going to solve your problems. It's going to add problems because now I brought in <laughs> networking. Now I brought in infrastructure. Now I brought in latency. Now you're doing a call across a network. Now you've brought in a bit of latency. And then you got a, you know DevOps, additional you know, code repos, uh, deployment pipelines. Who's managing all that? There's so much to microservices as an architecture. At the risk of introducing rigid rules, but if we're looking at more of of guidelines, in your estimation, what are good guidelines or or good thoughts to have in your mind as you're designing maybe your, your first set of microservices or maybe wading into microservices or maybe as a five-year veteran of microservices? So, yeah, that, that goes into that section of when should you not develop your microservices and go down that road. <laughs> and, and if you're monolith, if you're going to, if you're looking at it, like, well, should we pull uh, some functionality out of a monolith? But you look at that monolith and it's just too small. Meaning that if you're not necessarily in the big ball of mud problem, then it, you may actually have, it may actually be easier for your development team to just sit there and spend several sprints refactoring and doing, you know, clean up your technical debt. It actually be cheaper time-wise and effort and stress, et cetera, than building out the microservices. There has to be a strong need to have it as, as a microservice. Now, there's three three companies, eBay, Amazon, and Netflix. And those three, just for an example, they converted their main applications from a monolith to a total microservices architecture, but not overnight. They spent a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of lessons learned. Uh, Netflix even developed some open source software because of their journey on this. 
And I'm sure there were times when they put something in production and it kind of didn't work really as well as they were hoping to. They had to pull it back in, you know, right, and just change something and keep at it. But they, for example, had the money and the time to really keep going that direction because they also felt it had to happen. And if you look at an Amazon website and you're going to go find a product, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get a stream deck, right? Because we're, we're streamers. We're going to get a stream deck and you look, you see the, well, there's the, uh, the product description. There's the product images. There's the reviews, how many stars, right? There's the counter reviews. There's the, uh, other details about it. There's the suggested items, uh, you know, other items that go along with that category, there's uh, other products that may you might want to sell with it. Those are all fed by multiple microservices. And it's great too, because then what if I can find my product, I get to see my description, but I don't see any of the reviews. Well, that doesn't stop me from putting it in the cart and buying it. So even with the way that they've done microservices, it allows them to handle what's called fault isolation. As long as I can see the product... I can put it in the cart. All right. So now some business processes are connected. Some secondary things like getting reviews and a whole list of suggested items. Well, they're helpful, but if they don't work, if that, if that microservice is not live or there's too much latency or if it just didn't fire, whatever, it doesn't stop me from putting it in the cart. Now I can see all the reviews I want and, and, and I want to put it in the cart, but there's a problem with the payment service. Okay, well, that's a different problem, right? So obviously that microservice is going to be scaled much higher to be more fault tolerant. So you can even rate your microservices based on the business processes they provide as to their importance and their how, the high availability that you provide. So now that you've done all these microservices and you're worried about networking and servers and high availability and, and fault tolerance, but now you also got to make sure it's a highly available around the world. Now, if you're using a cloud provider, what regions are you in? Okay, so you're in the US, that sounds great, but you need to provide functionality to maybe uh, South Asia, right? Or, or into Europe and, and those places. Well, then you, get into, then you get into things like GDPR, CCPA, where you got data residency problems. So now you've got to design and consider your architecture to be tolerant of those restrictions as well. We've talked a lot about extracting legacy monoliths into microservices. What if you're a greenfield? Do you go directly there or what are the sort of the guides that tell you? And again, you also mentioned, and I, I think that's a pretty good, there's a lot of other patterns out there, but what are the, some of the guides specifically in the differentiating between microservices? And maybe I say, no, I just need a monolith here. Yeah. If at the end of this, somebody is still actually interested in doing microservices, I'd say uh, start the video over and, and, and <laughs> go, back to the, go to the go to the beginning of the podcast and, and take another listen. We've all developed something that was we bl believed true in our heart that this is the right way to go. And it wasn't until after we got there that we decided and we learned along the way and went, oh, wow, okay, there's these other things that would have, I wish I had known then what I know now, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just part of the experience of it. So 
you know, okay, so John, now that I've told you that there are other architectural patterns out there instead of microservices, are you now more intrigued to go, you know what, we got this new project. I want to go find out what he was talking about. I'm going to go grab that book by Mark Richards and Neil Ford on architectural patterns and go understand those other ones out there. Right. And I think that discovery out there is a is an important phase of that project as you're trying to understand the requirements of what needs to be done you get into the how are we going to implement it mm-hmm. and that discovery is going to be part you know when, when you go and look at what is the right way of doing this it's not always on stack overflow i hate to say that but it's just not <laughs> always on there so actually it probably is by now but spend the time doing that discovery you know, there's, there's several design patterns as it comes to code, right? So we talk about, you know, strategy pattern. I, I love that one is the first, uh, first design pattern I ever learned that, that design pattern solidified my understanding of interfaces. It clicked, everything came together. It was glorious. Angel saying it's awesome, but it, now you take it to a higher level. It's not about the code. It's not about language. Now it's about architecture. Yes. There's patterns out there as well knowing they're there, finding those patterns, and then understanding what is the right tool for the job. How about our listeners who are the crazy ones who've now listened through the podcast twice (laughs) and they're still not convinced (laughs) that they don't want to do microservices? Do you have any resources that you might point those people to, to either convince them further or, you know, help them on their journey? So, yeah, I mentioned that one book by Mark Richards and Neil Ford, I believe it's called, um, architectural patterns. There's also one, uh, microservices patterns by Chris Richardson. I would say check those out uh, at the very least. Now, the one with Chris Richardson, the uh, microservices patterns, that is a deep subject. It's it's literally about microservices, but he spit, there's two chapters just on testing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a deep subject. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or looking to level up their own careers? Regarding microservices, I'd say those two books. Well, so that's another thing too, is when you're a developer of a microservice and there's so much to consider, right? And I've been mentioning that throughout. So a developer that's doing that has so much more to learn than just the programming language. Knowing the C-sharp syntax, it's, it's simple. It's when do you use that? When do you use the right functions in the right ways, et cetera, et cetera, right? But what about the networking, understanding load balancers, understanding how your stuff is going to be called? But now that means us developers actually need to know the difference between a layer four and a layer seven on the OSI model for networking. But also what about security? What if you're working on a, on a microservice that's to process your paycheck? Do you want anybody to sniff that call, sniff the messages? on the network. I know it's a private network. You say, oh, that's fine. But the thing is, somebody else's microservice brought in a NuGet package off the internet, not knowing that source. And now that code is actually sniffing the network and trying to call stuff, send stuff back out. It happens. So you have to be protective of it. So now you look at TLS for encrypting that the communication. And then you realize, well, not everybody should be able to call our microservice. Now you got to put in something maybe like OAuth. It's like, yeah, but it's a private network. No, you've, you're going to have to work on that. You have to restrict. You have to add those pieces. So us developers have so much more to learn. Not, you don't have to master networking. You don't have to get your, you know, your certifications in networking, but you got to understand a little bit about it. 
go play with go play with messaging. Go set up a ton of hello world type uh, systems out there and just sending messages back and forth. Those kinds of things. Go set up, go, go to Azure, get you a free account. Go set up an Azure load balancer. You know, go get the basic one, set up a standard one, get you a public IP address, get a private IP address. Understand how they differ and how what actually happens to that virtual machine's access through things like that. So literally it's go play it's go learn and there it's 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 expensive in time and so that was the other thing too is if that if your team of developers is not given the time that they need to explore to learn to have the trials and errors then you're not ready to do microservices they got to jump in they got to go buy the books they're going to have to go watch the videos they're going to have to go f- file a new project and just go so where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? So I did have a, a website. It was taken down over the winter because um, out that hosting service that somehow got malware on it. So it's been recreated. Maybe you'll find it on seanwhitesell.com or uh, codewithsean.com. And now it's hosted on Azure. Um, I got a friend of mine that uh, did that for me, helped convert a lot of stuff uh, for me there. but. Um, and I'm way behind on updating that, but I will try to get that updated as much as possible. I am supposed to be streaming. Yes, I do stream on Twitch. I will be freed up this weekend. So I'm actually going to be doing that streaming this weekend. And I am. So one of the things that I was playing with yesterday, I'll be doing it again this weekend is if you're doing a, a microservice calling a microservice and you have an expectation of what that payload looks like, that's called a contract. Well, how can the consumer microservice be able to do integration tests of that expectations as well as give the output file to the provider microservice development team so that they can run that test and see if they've broken somebody downstream. Well, there's a, uh, it's called consumer driven contract testing. So I've been working on that and there's a, I'm using a, what's a library called PactNet, P-A-C-T-N-E-T. It's the .NET version of a Ruby uh, library from pact.io. I plan to be this weekend streaming, playing a lot more with that. I'm still playing with microservices, still doing stuff on the side. I, I still have a lot more to, to learn and to play with and to, to master messaging, to contract testing, et cetera. Well, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Sean Whitesell. Sean is a Microsoft MVP, ASP Insider, Technical Reviewer, and Cloud Architect at TokenX. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 